Well, good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. It is good to be here, Pastor Rob. It is an honor to once again open up God's Word. I sometimes wish I could be just as cool as Pastor Hannibal and speak English. I'll just speak redneck. But anyways, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. The other thing about Pastor Hannibal is he always gives me the tough topics. The last time it was on judgment, this time it is on sin. So I don't know what that means. Maybe I can handle the tough topics. Well, we are in this series, What Would You Ask Jesus? And we're looking at a sinner's perspective. As I was studying in preparation for this message, I thought about a Rubik's Cube. Now, if you know how to solve a Rubik's Cube, please do not raise your hand because you will make me feel bad. So, This Rubik's Cube, life is like a Rubik's Cube. I don't care what Forrest Gump said. It's not like a box of chocolates. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Because here's what happens is that many times in life we just keep spinning and fidgeting and and twisting and twirling, hoping that we can complete the Rubik's Cube. Because the whole goal is to make sure that every side has the same colors. Now, if you don't know how to solve a Rubik's Cube like me, I mean, you literally can be sitting at the dinner table the entire night, twisting and turning, hoping that you can figure it out so that you can complete the puzzle. That's life. That's life. Many of us in here online... We are hoping, we're twisting, we're turning, we're fidgeting, we're spinning, hoping to make our life complete, hoping to make our life whole. And because we cannot, because we don't know the secret, because we don't know the algorithm, we we get frustrated, we feel like a failure. We feel like we don't really have a sense of identity and wholeness, and thus we don't have really peace with life. And this Rubik's Cube actually teaches us a theological principle. And and here it is, we all miss the mark. As, As Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, if I cannot complete the, Rubik, the, the Rubik's Cube, then I fall short of its intention, of its purpose. And, and the same thing goes for humanity, that, that we fall short of hitting the mark. You say, Joshua, what is the mark? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. What's the goal of being human? Well, the goal of being human, as the Bible teaches us, is, everybody say it, glory of what? That, that's our purpose. That is the reason why you and I, we have been created to glorify God. The Bible teaches us, it's the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, that we were created in the image of God. Now the thing that I love about the image is like a mirror. That God created us as mirrors to reflect Him, to reflect His characteristics, His attributes, His kingdom. But the Bible tells us that we've fallen short of the glory of God. And and therefore, as, as sinners, we fidget, we spin, we twist, we turn, trying to figure out our life. And our life is marked by coming up short And as a result, we are shamed. 
and we feel shame. But we're not just guilty of falling short. Did, did, did you know the difference between shame and guilt? Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I have done bad. And as sinners, we have shame. Sinners suffer from the disease, shame-itis. I came up with that word because I love coming up with words. And if you think, and my wife, she's in the medical field, and so she told me, do you know what itis is? And I'm like, no, but can you teach me? It's basically inflammation. I'm like, well, perfect. That's even better because here's what shame does. It's an inflammation of the heart. There's something inside of us internally that we know is wrong. There's this inflammation. We know that we are unhealthy. We know that we are unwholesome, but we just don't really know what it is. And here's what Brene Brown says of shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And I know that I'm speaking to a bunch of middle and upper class people here this morning. And I will say that every single one of us, we deal with shame. But we are really good at covering it up. We're really good at hiding. We're really good at isolating ourselves from shame. See, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you are hiding today in your shame because of a poor decision that you've made. Maybe something has happened to you recently. Something has been said about you that you feel shame. Maybe there's a health disorder defect that you have and you feel shame. Or you might be having these, these feelings that you aren't good enough, that you aren't pretty enough, that you don't measure up, that you aren't a good spouse, a good parent, a good friend. Maybe you're not as productive at work. Maybe you are not su as successful. Maybe your children come home because they, they were just at a friend's house who lives in a 4,000 square foot house and they come to your house and they're like, Mom, Dad, why do we have a 1,500 square foot house? And at that moment, it's shame. And as a result of your shame, which is a manifestation of sin, you don't feel complete. You don't feel whole. Well, today I got good news because this passage in John 4, we're going to see a woman who was right there with you. This woman at the well. And if a sinner could ask Jesus any question, here's what they would ask him. How can you make me whole? So will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? And we're going to read just a few verses. We're going to read the end of this kind of story. And then we'll spend the rest of our time going back and unpacking this story. So John 4 Verse 27. Let's go back. Here we go. The clicker. Oh. <laughs> there we go. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, why, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Let's pray. Jesus, as we unpack this story, will you speak to every single heart here? 
and online about how you can make them whole. And it's in your name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to answer this question in this passage. How can Jesus make us whole? So this this message is for everybody in this room. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're dealing with sin, you're dealing with shame, this is for you. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you're far from him, you're distant, you don't know him, but somebody said, hey, I'll take you out to lunch. That's a good friend, by the way, but you need to come here. Hey, this is for you. And church, this is for us as well as we seek to participate in the mission of God of reaching people far from him. So four points this morning to answer the question, how does Jesus make us whole? Number one, he's going to step into our shame. He's going to step into our shame. Now, this is very interesting. John 4, 1 through 9. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, this is really interesting because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, as we'll see in the passage. And so the fact of the matter is, is that it's really interesting that Jesus actually takes the shortcut through Samaria when many a times Jews would go a six-day journey outside so that they did not have to go through Samaria. And I love the fact that he had to go. Now, why did he have to go? I'm like, was there a Chick-fil-A or something that he had to get some Christian chicken? But it wouldn't be Christian chicken in Samaria. Did, was, there, was there a Starbucks? What, what, was, what was in Samaria? Well, what we'll see is a woman. He had a divine appointment. When people want to know, why did Jesus come to earth? He had to come. Why did he have to come? Because the Father sent him. So he had to come. He had a divine appointment to rescue the world. Well, he had a divine appointment to meet a woman. And so he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired, so, so now John is telling us a little bit about Jesus' humanity, that Jesus was fully God, fully man, so he's tired as he was from the journey, so he sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, so it's noontime. Now, one of the things I'm learning about Chicago, it's cold. My, my eighth uh, grader, he, he, came, he came downstairs the other morning. He's like, I'm learning something about Chicago. And, he's, and, and, and his mom and I were like, what is it? Snow doesn't melt around here. <laughs> so uh, it just, it's just cold. Well, here at the sixth hour, it's hot. It's hot. No, no one was outside and no one's really walking to get water, but yet Jesus is there. Now, why is he there? Well, he's got a divine appointment when a Samaritan woman came to draw water Jesus said to her, now could you imagine, now this Samaritan woman, she's coming at noontime. Now women, one of the things that I have observed about you, now there's just an observation, is that you are packed people. You go in packs, you go in groups, you go to the bathroom, you go in groups, you go, you go to the store, you kind of go to groups, you go shopping, you kind of grow. So back then, You typically, if you're going to go get water, you're going with someone. Well, she is alone because a Samaritan woman 
And she normally comes at this time so that she doesn't have to deal with anybody, so that she can be isolated from people. Yet as she approaches the well this time, there's this strange man there. So she comes up to the well to draw water, and Jesus says to her. Now, here's the other thing. Most of the time, Jewish men did not speak to women in public. And Jews did not have any dealings with Samaritans. So so now you have a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. So Jesus is breaking some cultural norms. He's breaking some cultural rules. And so Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, Jesus has completely taken this woman off guard because here's what she says you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman how can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans what is Jesus doing Jesus is stepping into her shame like I said she's coming all alone and as we will learn in a few verses later She is an immoral outcast in her community because of her past. No one wants to deal with her. She wants to deal with no one. And yet she comes to a well at noontime in the heat of the day. She sees this strange Jewish man who actually says to her, Can you give me a drink? Now since... She's not only immoral, but she is also a Samaritan. It is obviously extremely strange that Jesus would ask for a drink from her. Now, could you imagine this Jewish man, literally his lips, if she did give him a drink, would touch the very ladle, would touch the very bucket that this Samaritan woman had. I mean, what uncleanness, Jesus. Are you serious? See, this is one of the things I love about Wheaton Bible, because this is just on a side note. Jesus will break down any racial, gender, socioeconomic, cultural, ethnic, ethnic boundary, whatever, because he came to save sinners. That's what I love about Wheaton Bible Church. And so he is breaking down some barriers He is stepping into what is shaming. She's a woman. She's an outcast. She's a Samaritan. And we don't even know her name. This is why it's a very good contrast between John 3 and John 4. We know Nicodemus' name. He's somebody, but yet he still needs Jesus. She's a nobody. We don't know her name, but she needs Jesus. And Jesus is stepping into into her anonymity. Like, when I think about this whole idea of stepping into shame, I've been in vocational ministry since I was 17 years old. I was a senior pastor for 12 years up until the time I started at the Billy Graham Center. And I will have to admit that I have struggled with shame my entire ministry. Now, here's some reasons why I would struggle with shame. Because I'd get on Facebook, I'd I'd get on Twitter, and I'd start scrolling and seeing what other people were doing, what they were celebrating. I'm like, good night. I know I'm not supposed to compare myself, but I'm definitely comparing myself. And I feel like a failure when I didn't see the movement or the growth. And actually, when I would see decline, I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? 
I've been in some very tough ministry settings that have left me feeling that I'm not good enough, that I just don't have it, that I'm just not cut out. And, and can I just say this, church, is that the church is really good at stomping on people's shame and not very good at stepping into people's shame. Because we, we know, I mean, come on, we like to criticize, we like to complain. One of the things that I always experienced is how people, they weren't any more loyal anymore. They had really no more brand loyalty that if you did something that, that they didn't like, they would just pick up their, their, their family and they would move down the street to a, another church. And it, I'm telling you, and I had to deal with that and I, I felt bad, I felt shame. Because I'm like, why isn't our ministry good enough? And this is why I love this story so much. It's because it highlights Jesus' pattern. He's not going to stomp on your shame. He's going to step in it because he is going to target your heart. Notice that Jesus starts relationally, not religiously. So he's, he's on mission to seek and to save that which is lost. He didn't come to condemn the world because the world already stands condemned. The world knows intuitively, innately, that it cannot make itself whole. And so Jesus is not going to come to condemn you. He's coming to rescue you. So he's going to step into your shame. But the next, he's going to draw you out of seclusion. He's going to draw you out of seclusion. Uh, Look at what happens next. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. Now, now this, the word gift here, it's used elsewhere, but this is the only place in the Gospels it has this, this type of, this Greek construct. So basically, Jesus answered her, if you knew the free gift of God. Now, now, I mean, imagine you are an immoral outcast in community. You have been married five times, and you are now living with a man. Let me ask you this. And and you have to also understand that that women were treated more as property in that day, not more as equals. When's When's the last time you think she ever got a free gift? When's the last time you think she got a free gift? Maybe at her first wedding. Okay, celebrate. Woo-hoo! Second wedding, third, no. Fourth, no. Fifth, absolutely not. No more free gifts for you. You're a serial adulterer. You're, you're like a runaway bride. I mean, what's going on? So, but yet Jesus says, if you knew the free gift, grace, mercy, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, what is Jesus getting into? What does living water refer to? Well, it could refer to Yahweh or God. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And I'll just go on because he says, And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They try to figure out life all on their own. That was one sin. The other sin is they they have forsaken the living water. They have forsaken Yahweh. So that's what Jesus could be referring to. He could also be referring to the Lord, to teaching. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by what? Streams of water. 
So Jesus could be referring to teaching or doctrine or the law, how it's like, how, how it's like streams of water. Or he could be referring to the Holy Spirit, where later on in John 7, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So he is drawing this woman out with a free gift of God and with talking about living water. Which leads her to say, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So she really doesn't understand the undertones where Jesus might be going. She's just thinking, okay, the stranger danger here. This guy's at the well. He's asking me for a drink. But then he's saying that if, if I knew who he was, I would ask him for a drink and he'd give me living water. But he, there's nothing in his hands to draw water with. So she's really not getting the references. She's even confused because she, she, she goes on. Are you greater? Now, now, I want you to again, I want you to think about you're this immoral woman. You've never met this man. He's a Jewish man sitting at this well talking about free gift of God, living water, like really stranger danger stuff. Okay, so are you greater than fa- Father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his, I don't know why it really makes a difference about flocks and herds. Like I don't want to drink after flocks and herds, but in Dali, they were some type of special flocks and herds. <laughs> but are you greater? Greater than Father Jacob? So she's not really getting what he's saying. However, don't miss it. He has drawn her into a conversation. When's the last time you think she had a conversation with someone else? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water in this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him, everybody say it, will never thirst. Woo! Man, this now, Jesus, he's, he's really stirring some questions here with this woman. She's really interested in this water because you know what we see next? The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. I want this water. Why? So I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water like Jesus. If I get this water, I don't have to get out of the house. If I get this water, I don't have to be seen in community. I I can just live in isolation. I don't have to get out anymore. I can have this water. I can be satisfied. I can be done. She wants this water. But to get this water... She's going to have to go to a place that she doesn't want to go to. Hey, 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 church, to get this water, you have to go to a place. I have to go to a place that we don't want to go. And where is that? He told her, go call your husband and come back. Now he's getting personal. He's getting personal because she'll say, I have no husband. Now, again, I don't want you to miss the, the, the tone. Because I don't believe that she's saying, well, sir, I I don't have a husband. I believe she's saying, I have no husband. Have you ever asked your teenager, do you really like that girl? Do you really like that guy? Mom! Dad! 
I'm there. My wife's there. No, they're just a friend, okay? And then they're like, I mean, they're like, whoa, hello. That, that's this. I have no husband. Oh, 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 okay. Why is Jesus, why is, he, why is he going there? Because he is going to the source of her sin and shame. See, you'll never get whole. You'll never find satisfaction. You'll never be healthy until you can pinpoint why you're unhealthy. Here's the principle that we learn. The fa- uh, where's the principle? Sin and shame feast on darkness, but are famished by light. Sin and shame feast on darkness, but they are famished by light. See, Jesus is drawing her out of darkness, but, but in drawing her out of darkness, she has to claim what that darkness is. She has to claim what that sin is. It reminds me of Proverbs 28. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And so Jesus does. He actually says, you, you, you're right. You have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, I mean, if you're that woman, good night. How does he know? We have no Facebook, no Twitter, so he can't Twitter or Facebook stalk me. How does he know? Well, so what is she going to do? She's going to swerve. And the third thing that we learn here is that Jesus will veer with you when you swerve. Because we don't want to have to deal with our sin. We don't want to have to deal with our shame. We don't want to have to deal with our darkness. We don't want to come out. So we will swerve. And that's exactly what she does. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Wow, she's, she's Sherlock here. You're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What has she just done? She switched the topic. We were on living water. Then we get on her husband, or lack thereof. And now she wants to get into a theological, controversial subject with Jesus. Now let me give you some background to this topic she brings up. Now remember the Samaritans, they were... A mixed race between Jews and Assyrians for hundreds of years ago. And they kind of made their own religion and temple system there on Mount Gerizim, which is right near the place of where Jesus and this woman is. So the Samaritans, they have their own form of religion there on Mount Gerizim. And so they had their temples. Now, here's what's interesting is in ruins at this point. But yet she's talking about worship there on Mount Gerizim. And so they think, the Samaritans think, that Mount Gerizim was a place of blessing. It's where God blessed Abraham. It's where Abraham had some blessings. Now, the Samaritans, they only observed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't observe any other of the writings. And so in the Pentateuch, there is no place where it would point out that Jerusalem is the place of worship. So that's one of the reasons why 
The Samaritans would say, hey, we worship on Mount Gerizim. You worship there in Jerusalem because you say that's where you ought to worship. But we don't have any type of authoritative text that would tell us that we need to worship there. However, from the Jewish perspective, we see that Jerusalem, it's the city that God chose. 1 Kings 11. It's the place where God dwells. Zechariah 8. It was the place where the temple was built. It was the place that God gave the specifications or the, the specifications of the temple. It was the place where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. It was the place, Jerusalem was the place that God, the true king of Israel, would rule from. So she brings up this controversial subject that they're not going to solve that day. See, uh, here's the thing that we learn. Sinners tend to swerve from their sin. If they can get, it, get you on a, another topic, if they can swerve. Now, here's the other thing. They, they may not just swerve, they may not deflect, but they may blow up at you or they may start blaming someone else. But the thing of the matter is, is that when they deflect, they're going to go, they're going to swerve to a different topic. This happens a lot today, especially if you're talking to a person that's far from Jesus. They'll say, what about the hypocrites? In church. Hypocrites, yeah. And I would, just, uh, I would just respond, well, do you go to Walmart? You go to Target? I bet there are hypocrites there too, but you ain't talking about Walmart or Target. Hey, hey, what about this? What about the narrow view that Jesus is the only way? That's so close-minded. So they want to veer. Well, if God is so good, why is there all of this suffering? You don't really believe the Bible, do you? It's so antiquated and full of errors. Church people, they're just homophobic, and I'm not. What do you do when someone wants to swerve? Well, Jesus, he could have brought her back on to the subject. Hey, let's talk about or sin. He doesn't. He could have said... I'm not, just, I'm not going there with you and the conversation is over because we're not going to solve this issue today. He could have shamed her by pointing out the remnants of her broken form of worship. Hey, look, Mount Gerizim, there's no more temple up there. Don't you remember what happened years ago? Or he could veer with her and that's exactly what he does because he goes on to say, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So why does Jesus follow her to this place? Because don't miss this. Our sin and shame problem is ultimately a worship problem. So she actually gets on the subject that really truly is the underlying cause of her sin and shame is a misguided worship problem. David Foster Wallace, an American writer and non-religious person who took his own life years ago, gave a commencement speech when he was at the height of his success. And here's what he said. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. So this is a non-believer. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God, a spiritual type thing to worship, 
be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother, Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some invaluable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So, so David Foster, he's owned to something that wayward worship yields unholy and unwholesome souls. It leaves you empty and incomplete and hungry and thirsty. It leaves you in a place of shame that you feel like you can never really measure up, that you feel like you never really are complete. And so Jesus is actually going to veer with her to talk about worship because that's where number four comes in. He reveals himself to be what truly satisfies. Here's what he says. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks. And then he goes, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Let me summarize what true worship is this morning. True worship. Listen, church, here's what true worship is. If you're far from Jesus this morning, this is what true worship is. True worship is attunement to the Father. It is anchoring yourself in the Son. And it has a life activated by the Spirit. So it is directed to the Father. It is anchored in Jesus. And it is activated by the Spirit. That is true worship. God is spirit, true worshipers. God is seeking true worshipers. It starts with the Father. Now I want you to think about this whole idea of spirit. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is laying there lifeless. God has just formed Adam. And what does, what does God do? He hovers over Adam and he breathes life into Adam. That Hebrew word breath or breathe is the same word for spirit. So God breathes his spirit into Adam and Adam awakens in Genesis 2.15. God is going to tell Adam, here's what I want from you in the garden. I want you to tend. I want you to keep this garden. I want you to have freedom in this garden. Eat from whatever tree that you want except this one tree. What is God doing? He is giving Adam truth. He is giving Adam the law that is supposed to be the the centerpiece of the garden. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve, they chose to sin. At that moment, they were marked for death and destruction. But God, he wasn't going to leave mankind in their sinful, broken, damaged state. No, he was going to pursue them. He was going to step into their shame. He was going to draw them out of seclusion. He was going to veer with them throughout history so that he could get to the place where he would reveal himself as the one true king. And so then we see in Ezekiel 37 where God tells Ezekiel to prophesy. To speak the word. And so Ezekiel is going to speak the word. And what is God going to do? He's going to put the spirit into the bones. And they're going to become living. In Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah is talking about this new covenant, God is saying that there's going to be this new covenant that I make. That I will write the law of God on their hearts. And they each will know me. Then you fast forward to the book of John and we see that the word of God became flesh. Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the word of God. And what will Jesus do 
towards the end of his ministry, after his resurrection, in John 20, what will he do? He will breathe the Spirit of God on his disciples. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus will send the Spirit on the church. And so what we see throughout the entire scriptures is that true worship is directed to the Father, anchored in the Son. Who is the Word of God? Who is the truth of God? Who is the way, the truth, and the life? And it is activated by the Spirit. So true worship is truly wholesome. How do you get this truth? Well, let me go back. A time is coming, and now is. The death and resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for us to worship, to truly worship God. And this is, uh, this is so cool. And then I'm done. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything. That's what I'm telling you. That's what people want today. They're looking for the silver bullet. They're looking for a person, a framework, a worldview, a philosophy that will help them make sense of life. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Look no further. You're waddling in sin, shame. You want it, you want it gone. Look no further. I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the answer. I just want you to remember, and maybe for the first time here, when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus was ripped. He was, his clothes ripped from him, hanging naked on a cross, exposed, shame, embarrassed. So he became shame so that we could be clothed. There on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that moment, there's darkness, isolation, there was a separation for God. See, Jesus went into darkness, Jesus went into isolation so that we could come into the glorious light. Look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes us whole. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for making us whole. Thank you for stepping into our sin. Thank you for stepping into our shame. Father, I pray that believers here that are living in sin, living in shame, they would come out, they would confess it this morning, that they would leave whole. Maybe those in here that they've come in, to this place of worship for first time in a long time. Maybe, may, may they leave whole because they have given their life, they have yielded their life to Jesus. And Father, may we be a church activated by the Spirit to reach people far from Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.